For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come, And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's ask for the Lord's help this morning. Father, we are in desperate need of your spirit's eye-opening power. And we pray that he would enlighten us this morning. In Jesus' good name, amen. Paul is now moving on from... Talking about the eternal nature of our salvation to the practical um, nature of our salvation and what it spurs on in him. And so he begins this section on the gloriousness of Jesus Christ by saying he's offering prayers for the Ephesian church because he's heard of their faith and the love that they have. And it's the faith here, if, if you look at Paul's the Apostles' writings is not uh, uh, faith intangible. It's a faith quantified. It's, it's doctrinal in nature. The faith once for all handed down to the saints. It is doctrine, faith, and life of love. And so both things are present in the Ephesian church. Um, both the truth of the gospel, the faith of the church... And the, the actions of a church that's believing. And so he says, because of both those things, because you have both faith and love, and they're united together in your church, I give thanks on behalf of you. I'm very glad to have you as a church. And then he says, I don't cease to give thanks, and he remembers them in his prayers. And so these are the things that seeing faith and love in churches all over the world should cause us to do. We should always rejoice when we see both happening. If we see one lacking, we should take stock of that. Um, this is often the case that one or the other is, is constantly lacking in the churches. This is true in our church. They're always in flux. We're either more or less true in both of those things. Uh, but if we see one and not the other, it is not cause for thanksgiving. Um, So if we see a church that is completely wrapped up in doctrine, um, a a church that has no outward movement toward its people and the people of its community, that that is not a good thing. Um, Because pure doctrine, good doctrine, true faith cannot be hidden. It is inexplicably going to burst out. And so it is actually a willful thing to restrain true faith and not love people. It's a willful action. Um, 
And these churches exist. Um, it is difficult sometimes to pinpoint these sorts of things. Um, but the unfriendliness of churches, the unlovingness of churches, is usually more of a felt thing than a, um, a known thing. And so if you have a church that has high doctrine but has no love, this is not good. If you have a church that has no doctrine or bad doctrine but has lots of social aspect to it, that also is a real problem. This is probably the most persistent problem in the American and Western church. No doctrine, no faith, but lots of tangibleness to their, to their love. Except that also is false. It cannot exist. If you are not acting in faith, then whatever love action you've had is actually a false love. And so we have to have both, and here the Ephesian church has both, and so Paul is thankful for it, and then prays for the Ephesian church. And he prays that the Spirit would come and he would enlighten their eyes, that they would have more wisdom and knowledge of Christ. And so this is, a, this is an interesting thing, that here Paul is praying for a church that has already been enlightened. Right. So these are not non-Christians. These are Christians. These are people who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And then Paul's prayer for them is that the Spirit would enlighten them, which sounds a little off. We would think they already have the Spirit, Paul. They already have the wisdom and knowledge of salvation. But it's a, a prayer that we would not be um, satisfied where we're at spiritually, that we would always hunger for more and that God would give us that hunger and that he would satisfy that hunger by the Spirit. And this too is a sign of apathy in the church where we're content, if we become content with what we know about Christ and that we have achieved some status of knowledge and that that is adequate for the rest of our lives. That this is not what Paul is praying for the Ephesian church. He's praying that continuously wisdom and knowledge are added to the Ephesian church of Jesus Christ the Son. That this is actually normal Christian life and that Paul prays this for a church that is already expressing true faith through true love. That this isn't a... uh, He doesn't see a problem and say that the, the solution is more knowledge of Christ. He sees a good thing already existing and says, I want more of that for you. I want you to continue in the thing you are already doing by the power of the Spirit. I want him to do more of that for you. In the book of Hebrews, the, the writer is writing to this group and he rebukes them because they're still infants in the faith, even though they've been years in the faith and that they should be proceeding past small doctrine into larger doctrine, uh, larger faith knowledge, larger wisdom, more practical outworkings of the Christian faith. Um, That this is a rebuke in the letter of Hebrews to not be infants, but as an encouragement in the letter to the Ephesians, that Paul says, this is what I want for you. I want you to grow in knowledge and faith, in, in the truth of Jesus Christ.
um, that having your eyes already have been enlightened, I want them to be opened more. Uh, there was, I don't really know when the song became popular, but back in the late 90s when I was listening to a lot of Christian music, there was a popular, uh, I don't know what you would even call it, song, but was often sung in churches, Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. And all that is is just taking this verse from Ephesians and putting it to a personal prayer. So instead of Paul praying for the Ephesian church, it is us, him, an individual praying it for himself. And this is true of, of much of what we read in Scripture. It's to a particular person or a particular group of people at a particular time from a particular person. But it is broadly applicable. That this isn't just something we pray broadly for some church that we've heard of, but this is a thing we pray for ourselves and for our church. That this should be a a constant prayer for us, that we would grow in the wisdom and knowledge of him who fills all in all. And we should pray for it often, and we should pray for it together, and we should pray for it individually, and we should pray for it corporately, and we should pray for it across our presbytery, and we should pray for it across all the churches that we know. And it should be constant, that God would continually work his spirit into the church. So then what are the three things he prays for in this line? So what is the wisdom and knowledge that he's going to ask the Spirit for continually on behalf of the Ephesians. Verse 18, that you may know what is the hope to which he called you, what are the riches of his inglorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his might. The hope to which he has called you, the glorious inheritance in the saints, and the immeasurable working of the power of his might. These are the three things. These are the three knowledge areas, the wisdom areas, that Paul prays for the Ephesian church. That he doesn't just pray for bland wisdom and knowledge. It's not unattached to anything. So let's talk about what these three things are and why these should be good for us and a help to us. So the hope to which he has called you. The hope to which he has called you. Lots of life, no matter where you find yourself, doesn't have hope. It's just all the time, hopeless. Uh, We experienced this as a nation last week in the shooting down in Texas. If anyone could look at a situation and lose hope, it's in that situation. right? And we don't need to go into all the details of what happened But that sort of thing robs people of hope. It is a a costly event for people's faith. And so you, you have to imagine that assuming there are Christians who had children in that school, which I think is a fair assumption, um, and that their children are now dead. Devastating attack against the hope to which he has called you. Or, commonly also, the regular anxieties of life. A thousand needle pricks of a million different things always attacking us for our attention rob us of hope. Our own sins and the fact that we cannot attain 
the glorious inheritance in the saints by ourselves, attacks our hope. And so the hope to which he has called you, what is that hope? What is the thing that Paul here prays for the Ephesian church that we should have as well, that we should desire to see more clearly and that God would give us through the Spirit? The hope that all these things, all these things cannot overcome the resurrection of the Son of God. Right? So he ends, ends this whole segment with his great might that he has worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Imagine, just for a moment, you were there at the cross and saw Jesus die and saw him taken to the tomb. And then you don't see him. And it's Friday night and it's Saturday. Hope gone. The Messiah dead. Three and a half years. What are we? How do we? And bursting out of the tomb. Right? So the great, the mighty work that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. That's the hope. That even death has no power. That's the hope. That's the hope for Uvalde. Even death has no power. And he seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. We're going to talk more about this aspect of it at the end. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Here too is a place where our hope is placed, misplaced. Our hope is often, often in chariots and horses, isn't it? We, we place our hopes in a person. We place our hopes in a politician who is a person, I suppose. It's oh, a joke. It's a joke right there. No. Uh, we place our hopes in people all the time. We place our hopes in institutions all the time. We place our hopes in programs, in decisions that we have made. And then they always fail. They never bring ultimate victory because they can't. They have no ability to actually succeed without the power of God. And so even now, right, we have the very likely overturning of Roe v. Wade in just a few weeks. And I don't know if anything in my adult lifetime has brought me this much joy. It's knowing that Roe is likely to die. And yet that cannot be our hope. Cannot be our hope. If Roe is overturned, Lord willing it will be, that doesn't fix the million and a half women who every year choose to murder their child. It doesn't fix that problem. If we think a legislative act or a de-legislative act on behalf of the court is going to fix that problem, we have our hope wrong. That doesn't mean we shouldn't hope for good legislation and we shouldn't 
ask God to do it, and we shouldn't be glad when it happens. It just means we cannot place our hope in this, because it won't fix things. But here, in Christ, above every name that is named, he's far above them. Every name that is named, every institution, every person, every program, he's above them. When they fail, he succeeds. Every time. He cannot fail. He is far above. And he put all things under his feet and gave him, that is Christ, as head over all these things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the place where I think our hope often, though we wouldn't ever say it like this, our hope dies in the church. Why does it die in the church? Well, in the church we are the most intimate sort of body. We see each other's sins and failures real close because we are a family. We are the body. We are united in Christ together. And when the body fails or sins, or walks off and leaves us without a right foot. We think immediately, oh no, how? How can we get on without this person, or in light of this situation? Or what's going to become of the church because of this? And we lose hope. We lose hope. And it's easy. It's very easy. There's lots of things to point to. You'd go, oh, that's, that's hopeless. That's hopeless. What are we going to do in light of that? Or if that, person, I, if that person abandoned the faith. And you all have known these folks. I have known these folks. And it has been devastating to watch. I remember a guy in school. Pat was his name. Pat was a godly man in college. Pat was the kind of guy where you went to find him and you opened his dorm room door and you found him on his knees praying. And you hadn't said, I'm coming over to see you. You hadn't given him any warning. He was just praying in his room in college by himself with no one watching. And then Pat not only abandoned the faith, but became an enemy to the faith by the time he graduated college. Hated God. And many of us, many of us who were around that just thought, what if Pat, what hope, what hope do we have? Pat, that guy? I'm like half the Christian, a third of the Christian, a tenth of the Christian that Pat was. And he did not make it. I have no hope. And so this always happens. We always have the stories, right? So currently there's this big uproar in the SBC over leadership in that denomination, over sex abuse scandal stuff. Um, And people will lose hope. People will leave those churches. I'm sure it's happened today in light of the news that came out this week. Why did they leave? They lost hope. And they lost hope because they hoped in the wrong person, the wrong thing. We need our eyes opened to this. And Paul prays for the Ephesian church 
This is going to happen. You're going to face hopeless situations. You're going to see sin. You're going to see misery. It's going to be right there in your midst. You're going to watch it. You're going to have people abandon you. You're going to have people attack you that you have known and loved. And then all of a sudden, he just says, everything is under his feet. Everything is under Christ's feet. Hope is in Christ. This is the hope. And so all these other things that are easy to fall prey to and victim to and to sin in, Jesus says, I am the hope. I am the hope. I have put all things under my feet. There is no other name. I am above all things. I never fail. I am the victory. I will have the victory. This is our hope. So Paul prays that the Ephesian church would be enlightened to this. And so we should pray for this too. We should pray that we do not fall prey to the victim, or we do not fall to hopelessness because of some situation or some person or something in the church, but that we should have hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and in his church that he said will not fail. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church, his body. And we are that church, his body. The Ephesians were that church, his body. The hope to which he has called you. That you may know what is the glorious inheritance in the saints. The glorious inheritance is a reference to the great day that still awaits when Christ returns and all is made well and the new heavens and the earth are made for us to inherit and to own and to rule over and to have and to dwell with God forever eternally. Amen. Our glorious inheritance in the saints. Why the in the saints? We are, this is a truth that's very difficult to get at, but it's very common in our church day. And it's this lone ranger Christian. That's what it's come to be called in the West. The lone ranger Christians. It's just me and Jesus, and that's it. That the church, the saints, are kind of secondary. They're kind of off to the side. It's not important. It doesn't matter. But the saints are going to be together in eternity. We will not have our mansion up on a hill and nobody around us for acres and acres and acres. That's not the view of heaven. Now, I don't know what heaven will be like, but I do know this. You will not be alone. You will not be alone. You will be with all the people in the church. In this church here, in the church broadly, they'll all be together. And that is a glorious thing. In fact, it's how he, again, puts it at the end. He gives him his head over all things to the church, which is his body. And what does Paul mean by the body? He means the individual members of the church together. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We are members of his body and one another. You cannot separate the glorious inheritance of the saints from togetherness. Saintliness togetherness. But we often do it here. As though this is a good way to prepare ourselves for the joy of heaven. To disregard, disenfranchise, to tailor off 
the gathering together of the saints. This is not... This is sometimes taken in a way that is not true, but I do think it is true in many ways, and it is that earth is preparatory for the eternal state, that God is preparing us for what will eventually be. Um, This doesn't mean, uh, what some people think it means is that uh, uh, this is how our, our works are going to be weighed is preparatory. That's not what I mean. I mean the things he has called us to here on earth in fellowship together and in good works towards one another are preparatory for the things we will be doing in heaven. Now, they'll look different, right? Because there won't be need in heaven. There won't be hunger in heaven. There won't be those sorts of things. But the camaraderie, the brotherhood of man will be with us forever in heaven. It is the glorious inheritance in the saints. And so I think Paul is urging the Ephesians, and he talks about this later in his letter, the uh, just in another chapter later, that this wall of hostility that had been between the Jews and the Gentiles has been torn down in Christ. And that that is a togetherness that Christ did on earth that will eventually be totally resolved in heaven. And so this is a way that we pray for one another, not just that we would have this heavenly-mindedness that we forget everybody around us, but it would be a heavenly-mindedness in the saints for all eternity, with each other for all eternity, that we don't get to leave behind our brothers and sisters in the here and now, because together we will be with him for all time. And then the final thing, the third thing, What is the immeasurable power, the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might? It is easy to lose hope, and it is equally easy to lose um, faith because of these things, and think that there is no possible way that you will ascend to the glorious inheritance in the saints. Because of your sins and failures and weaknesses. Because of failings of others and sins against you. And so here, Paul two times draws, draws a direct parallel to the power of God to make these things happen. That in order for us to come up out of ourselves, to have faith that can endure, to have hope that is long-suffering, to... Believe that we will actually inherit the great inheritance that is ours with the saints. That it takes a much stronger arm than we have. We do not have strength for this task. We don't. God does. Over and over and over and over in Scripture, we read of God's mighty right arm, His power to save. Why all the repetition? Of this truth. Why the prayer that we would know it more after we're saved. Because isn't after all the whole point to just be born again. And then kind of everything flows after that. No. That is the beginning of his power to save. It is not the end of his power to save. And we have to trust in it. Or we will trust in ourselves. This is the way I think... Paul is using these sorts of his juxtapositions. We tend to have hope in other people, and then Christ is above other people. And so then our faith is, our hope is misplaced. 
And we tend to want to be without other people, and so he says our inheritance is with the saints. And we tend to think that we can solve all those problems in our own strength. And so Paul prays that we would know that it is God who must do these things. We must be humble before him, knowing that our strength, our strength, cannot ever accomplish the things that God has for us to accomplish. When we think of what sin is, um, we often think it is a, um, and it is, an act of violence against God. Um, But there's this other aspect of sin that John Owen writes about that is a weariness with God. And so John Owen says that every act of sin is a fruit of being weary with God. The reason we grow weary with God is that we don't trust in His immeasurable power and greatness. And we forget that He, by the working of His might, raised Christ from the dead and seated Him far above all things in the heavenlies. We forget this because we think, well, Yeah, but I haven't seen that. I haven't known that. When has God acted like he did in the days of Moses in my life? And then, let's say someone faithful comes along and says, Yeah, but what about this? And what about that? And what about this time? And you go, Yeah, but right now, there's no power. There's no might. We grow faithless. We grow weary with God. Weary Though he is mighty, we think he is too slow to act and we know better than him. Weary because we don't trust that he's actually able to fix these problems. I spoke earlier of Roe versus Wade being overturned. And I'm a young man still. I am younger than Roe by a decade. Roe is approaching 50 years old. 1973. I forget that to have been working for 50 years, hoping for the overturn of something, is a wearying task. And the only thing that can strengthen us, resolve us to do these sorts of things that are impossible, the overturning of Roe is an impossible thing. It has been tried, it has failed. Dozens and dozens and dozens of times. And then all of a sudden, with the most liberal president we have ever had, a venomous Senate that wants to enshrine abortion as law, he does an unthinkably powerful thing, an unimaginable act of might. He turns in the face of Who knows what? The minds of at least five justices. And says, no more. We act as though we did that. We did that. We did not do that. God did that. God did that. Through his immeasurable power. 
And he does that with all sorts of things. Indwelling sin that we cannot seem to rid ourselves of. Sin that has plagued us for decades. We think, why? Why? We plead with God like Paul. When? When? What, what am I to do with this body of death? And then God, through Christ, powerfully does something sometime. And our longings for those things of old, those sins that we have walked with our lives, they come to an abrupt end. Or they don't, and he upholds us anyway to the end. This is the immeasurable working of a powerful God. A God so mighty, so mighty, that he raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the heavenlies. Far above all power and dominion and rule and authority. These are the things that Paul prays for the Ephesian church. These are the things that we ought to pray for one another. And these are the things we need to have for ourselves. And we need to ask God to give to us. Hope. Hope. Open our eyes to hope. Open our eyes to the glorious inheritance in the saints. Open our eyes to the immeasurable working of his great might. These are the things that will make us much, much more of the same sorts of people that the Ephesian church and we already are. Faith and love. Faith and love. Paul saw it. Paul prayed for more. That these things would continue to be built up in the Ephesian church. These are the great things that are beyond comprehension. Who could ever know the mind of God and what the fullness of hope was? Or what is the eternal life and the glorious inheritance that we will have? No eye has seen nor ear has heard. Even those who saw heaven, who were swept up into it, John and Paul and even the three apostles when they saw Jesus lighted up on the mountain. Unspeakable were the things they saw. Indescribable were the things they saw. The might of God. So mighty that it shook the foundations of the earth. Tore the temple curtain in two. This is our God. Mighty to save. Glorious and good. And worthy of all our hope. So let's pray this for one another. Let's hope this for one another. Let's plead this before our God for each other. But the Spirit would give us eyes to see these things clearer than we ever have before, more precisely, and that it would do us good, not just emotionally, but outwardly, that these things propel us to do the good works of the gospel so that others might see these same things, that we would not be alone in our worship, but we would gather others to Christ with us, hoping for that day. This is our hope. This is our glory that Christ has overcome. Let's pray this morning and ask for God's help. Father, we are very grateful.